This is Isaka's Page 2 Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Kevin Key, Isaka's IT Professional Practices Lead. Joining me is ESET's Chief Security Evangelist, Tony Anscombe, to chat with me about ESET's recently released 2021 Threat Report. Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Kevin. So before we dive into this report, why don't you give us a little background about yourself and ESET for our audience? Okay, well, as you said, I'm I'm ESET's Chief Security Evangelist. I'm based on the West Coast in California. We're actually a European company uh, headquartered in Slovakia, and uh, we're over 30 years old, and we still have the original founders in the company. So the company still focuses very much on research, but we're a cybersecurity company with products. But as I say, we're a research-heavy cybersecurity company. So we believe in still actually understanding what's the motivation behind cyber criminals and cyber crime and you know, how are they moving forward and following that for the wider ecosystem and taking that information to protect our customers. We have products that range all the way from something you might use as a consumer on your laptop or your phone, all the way through to enterprise EDR systems and threat intelligence that we provide major corporations. Well, thanks again for joining us. I'm really excited to talk about the threat report. So let's get right into it. Uh, What are some of your main takeaways from the high level statistical trends noted in this report? Well, one of the big ones has to be in there. I mean, there's probably two that I'd say are big highlights in there. One has to be ransomware, and that's because yeah, I don't think there was a week that went past last year where we weren't reading something in the media about some ransomware hit. But also RDP. Uh, now, over the last two years, so many of us have been working from home and actually going forward, the whole hybrid approach to where we may work from as, as individuals is very much uh, at the forefront. And RDP is remote desktop protocol. It's a piece of software used for people to connect into networks. It's it's the Microsoft solution. And what's interesting about that is over the last two years, we've seen huge numbers of attacks against RDP systems or attempted attacks against RDP systems. And while the the attacks continue to grow, the number of unique clients they're hitting is declining, which could be seen as a good thing. It might mean that companies are securing their RDP systems, but cyber criminals are not stopping. And in fact, over the course of 2021, we saw 897% increase in RDP attacks. And to put that in, in real numbers, that was somewhere over 200 billion attempts to connect to RDP solutions. Well, speaking of RDP, so what is your analysis of the escalation of these attacks, specifically in regard to RDP? Well, unfortunately, it's it's nearly easy. It's nearly easy pickings. I mean, it's somebody attempting to use credentials they've either found or they're brute forcing credentials on these solutions. So it's where somebody uh, somebody has got a public-facing RDP service still. And there's certain ways on the internet, as you know, Kevin, that you can find these public-facing nodes fairly easily. You know, companies should be putting RDP servers 
behind a virtual private network. So on the inside of their network or or in a segment on the inside of their network so that somebody's already authentic, you know, coming in over a VPN and then they're communicating with an RDP server on the other side so it's not publicly facing, which, of course, stops the cyber criminal then actually trying to brute force their way into that solution. And by doing that, you know, you're, you're strongly authenticating the person with the VPN, you're encrypting the traffic over the VPN, and you're doing all the normal things before the person actually connects into the network. Nice. To move on from the topic of RDP, you know, you mentioned behind the authentication server, possibly behind a firewall, but if we're moving on to ransomware, what are the most concerning elements uh, of the surge in these ransomware attacks? Well, there's a surge, but also the change in method of the attack. Whereas if we go back two, three years, the attack was fairly much in an email. So, you know, it was some phishing attempt to get into a network or it, or it was an attachment in an email that would launch some sort of ransomware. These days, this has become a much more longer game for cyber criminals. They're finding an incursion point into a network. They're spending time. They're looking around the network. They're mapping that network. What they're doing is then looking for the data, the sensitive data that a company might have, extracting, exfiltrating that data to the dark web and then, where possible, they're disabling security systems, and then they're launching their ransomware attack. And at that point, this is a double extortion, because if the company doesn't pay or, or they manage to thwart the ransomware attack itself, of course, the data is already on the outside, on the dark web, and they'll have seen extracts in the ransomware demand, extracts of that data published somewhere on the dark web to show that somebody is already taking it. So, so this has become... You no longer is it is it a chance cyber criminal, you know, throwing an email at somebody. This is uh, a resourced cyber criminal spending time and effort and prospecting their their customer. I suppose if you want to put it that way, their victim actually is the better word for it, isn't it? Um, you know, prospecting their victim and then launching that very specific attack. And we've seen lots of vulnerabilities, and we, I know we can come back to some of those. There's been some very public vulnerabilities in 2021, which we can come back to, that, of course, they've exploited as well. And it's a huge issue. And it's an area where, as we know, the Colonial Pipeline that kind of kicked this off at the start of 2021. I mean, they weren't the first in 2021, but it was certainly one of the most notable moments because it was an infrastructure and it affected consumers on the street. I mean, there was lines outside of gas stations. But if we fast forward all the way through to the end of 2021, so 4.4 million demand on Colonial Pipeline, which they paid, yeah, Media Markt had a $240 million ransom at the end of the year. And there's a progression through the year, you know, CNA Financial at 40 million, Kaseya were, uh, were demanded 70 million, which they didn't pay. But you can see how this is escalating and only escalating in one direction, unfortunately. On the defensive side, do you think a lack of network mapping and segmentation basically escalates these sorts of issues and attackers know that? Well, certainly uh, attack, yeah, attackers are, are aware. I think zero trust is kind of the fashionable term of the day, isn't it? Is But actually, if we, get, if we take zero trust, we can go all the way back to Project Jericho. Uh, and Kevin, maybe you don't look old enough to remember back that far, but if we go back nearly 20 years, 
Project Jericho was kind of groundbreaking at the time where it was a zero trust model started by somebody in the Royal Mail in the UK. Now, the Royal Mail in the UK has distributed services. And what I mean by that is the postmasters are you know, often franchisees in, in other businesses. And what the then CISO was looking at was, well, how do I actually treat these people at arm's length and have that zero trust and only start securing what's at my core? And we're, we're seeing, I think, the whole industry now moved to that zero trust model. And we've certainly seen federal guidance for federal agencies and government institutions and departments going that way as well. Awesome. So you mentioned in the past using email links to launch ransomware attacks, but in the report, email threats more than doubled for the year. So why do you think that is? I have my theories, but I want to hear yours. <laughs> well, unfortunately, and this, this is a good question. It, it's because you know, there's lots of reasons why we could, we could surmise this, but human behavior, unfortunately, I think is difficult to change. So therefore, email threats will continue to be a primary way of you know, send, uh, you know, trying to fish for, you know, with info stealers or phishing for credentials, et cetera, is a natural way. Yeah, you know, I've seen companies run training mechanisms and while it does move the needle slightly, it's tough to get people to change behavior. And unfortunately, you know, I think that behavior is not just in email, it's in our day-to-day -day work as well. Uh, if you think about SIM jacking, for example, it's socially engineering of the person in the carrier shop to reissue the SIM or the, or the customer service person over the phone. So social engineering is here to stay and email is very much a social engineering topic. And they're also becoming far more better at their craft. If you look at some of the emails that land in your inbox today, Kevin, I mean, yeah, I actually had one that landed in my inbox from Friday and I had, to, I checked it twice because I wasn't sure whether it was real or not. And it was a phishing email. But like I say, they start to look and feel very, very confident. And of course, they're getting more data as well. As more and more data becomes available about us and more resources become available to them, yeah, they can actually make that look real and target us and know information about us that mean the email may actually kick something off inside of us that, that makes us think it's real. So just in your opinion, uh, with the advancement of, of these attacks, do you think the lack of awareness on a user side is getting better or worse? Well, I think the awareness is getting better. You know, with every big cyber attack, you know, whether that's the colonial pipeline attack and then an executive order, because these things are continually in the news, it starts to become something we continually think about as both consumers and as employees, and certainly obviously uh, in the cybersecurity world. But yeah, I, th I think the awareness is getting better, but I also think the the resources available to the cyber criminal are getting better. Are we winning? Uh, yeah, I, th I think to a certain degree, I think we are winning that awareness game because now if you look, a lot of companies go down the cyber risk insurance route. Part of the requirement for cyber risk insurance is actually to have a cybersecurity awareness training package at least once a year for, for your employees. So therefore, sitting somebody through one of these packages for half an hour to an hour. And, and actually, as ESET, we provide training of this type is creating that awareness, both as consumers and employees. But yeah, I question whether once a year is enough. Personally, I think we should do some sort of segmented 
training through the year as well. If once a year it's an hour, maybe you do once a quarter a 15-minute refresher or you run some sort of scenario internally in an organization to make sure that actually the message stays prevalent. This episode of Page to Podcast is brought to you by ESET, the global leaders in cybersecurity research and innovations. As you know, ransomware isn't only proliferating, it's taken on a whole new level of sophistication because the payoffs are big and cyber criminals are motivated to create brand new strains that are capable of avoiding detection. These kinds of evolving threats require a dynamic approach to detection that's faster and more precise than conventional endpoint protection. The key to this proactive ransomware protection is ESET Dynamic Threat Defense. EDTD uses cloud-based sandboxing technology to detect and isolate new, never-before-seen types of threats. EDTD handles a wide range of file types, including documents, scripts, installers, and executable files. It identifies and isolates suspicious materials, then runs through them in a safe, sandboxed environment that provides for code analysis and deep inspections of the sample. Using machine learning, in-memory analysis, and AI, EDTD enables behavior-based detection and allows or blocks a file in minutes. This kind of speed, with no extra demands on your system resources, is something endpoint detection just can't accomplish. Nobody wants their organization to be patient zero in a cyber attack. So if you're looking for world-class ransomware protection, you're going to want ESET Dynamic Threat Defense. EDTD is included in ESET Protect Complete. This bundle also includes endpoint security, full disk encryption, advanced security for Microsoft 365 to close those gaps in native protection. Get a free business trial of our award-winning endpoint protection today. Moving on to malware specifically, did anything surprise you uh, among the top malware detections? Um, no, I'm not sure anything particularly stuck out in those those detections. I mean, you see a lot of downloaders, info stealers. Uh, in fact, what maybe one of the things that did stick out in my mind was the fact that, for example, info stealers, you saw a decline in info stealers, yet actually the category as a whole should remain as critical as it was before. And the reason being is we're seeing more banking Trojans, and the biggest area we saw banking Trojans was actually in the US. So you know, the severity of what's being pushed becomes far more monetization for the cyber criminal and therefore becomes more targeted. The critical nature of, of that malware certainly stays very high for me. Great. So speaking of the reward and moving on to a hot topic, if you will, uh, what do you see the biggest challenges when it comes to cryptocurrency related threats? The fluctuations in the market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, and I'm looking at you, Kevin, you know, are you a cryptocurrency investor? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And not a good answer at, at this point in time, but uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, it gets better. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Um But one of the challenges in there is, of course, when cryptocurrency goes up in value, which we saw towards the end of last year, I mean, uh, you know, now now it's 50% of what it was at that point in time. But if we we look at the as the value goes up, of course, coin mining becomes far more profitable. Uh, And to, to explain coin, you know, to explain coin mining, 
it basically take a computer's resource, you become part of the 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 packet of machines that are trying to create the blockchain, yeah, for cryptocurrency to work, and you get rewarded in cryptocurrency. So if you're being rewarded in cryptocurrency, and when the value is high, you're being rewarded with more riches. And what you've also seen is some countries actually turn around and say, we're actually not going to allow coin miners in our country at all. So you've got, I think, about 12 countries in the world have actually turned and said no mining can take place. And the reason they're doing that is because it's a huge drain on their infrastructure. So you know they may be generating green electricity, but unfortunately, coin miners are then sucking all the, all the energy that they're creating for green electricity and forcing countries to then still produce you know, carbon-unfriendly power as well, So, which is why they're stopping it. But of course, that gives opportunity. Because if, as a, uh, a cyber criminal, I can create something that's going to hijack the resource of your machine and use your machine to generate cryptocurrency for me, yeah, then I'm not spending any of the electricity, I'm not spending any of the resources on my computing power, et cetera, et cetera, and you're doing it for me. So unfortunately, it continues to be an issue. And of course, last year, we saw a number of uh, crypto exchanges uh, get hacked as well, and the theft of some of those cryptocurrencies directly from exchanges. Yeah, I don't, to go on a tangent a little bit, I don't know if you've seen uh, some of the reports of people buying software and basically installing uh, a miner, you know, and you get to keep some of the profits, but a lot of those profits go to the company, the software company itself. I don't know if you've seen those reports. It's kind of scary to think about though. I, I have seen those reports and there's a number of considerations I, I have in there and, and maybe I'll run a test, Kevin, and we can have that discussion on, a, on another podcast. But if you look at that, I'd question one, whether it's economical, uh, because if you take somebody's average laptop, I mean, these some of these pieces of software are clever. They use the resource when you're not using it. So they look at performance of the device. So suddenly you've got a laptop whose fan is going to be on 24 hours a day coin mining. Your laptop is going to die quicker than if you didn't do this. You're making such a small amount on a small computing device like this that I question whether you actually really get anything back. And as you say, you're then sharing it with somebody else. And then to add to that, I'd love to know what the tax implications are. Because if you ever move that cryptocurrency into cash, I think you're going to get taxed by the IRS on it. Yeah? Yeah, so as far as I know, it's the... It's the gains you're making. Well, right now there's not many gains, but uh, yeah, they're keeping track of that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a sustainable thing, and I think people will soon, yeah, understand and realise that actually this is not something you do on a home computer. I mean, great if you've got a server room and the server room's not doing anything, and you've got lots of power for it. Carry on. Nice. So, uh, yeah, let's let's get back uh, to the report. I. I kind of th threw us off a little bit, but if 2021 were defined by severe vulnerabilities, what are the main lessons the security community uh, should have learned uh, from them? Well, we saw a couple of big vulnerabilities, didn't we? And if you go all the way back to March in 2021, we saw those couple of vulnerabilities on Microsoft Exchange systems. And those were particularly nasty because they were being exploited and they were being exploited by APT groups before, unfortunately, the patch became available. And uh, we even saw the FBI step in uh, during that entire incident and turn around and start patching servers or, or removing the malware from servers, the, the footprints of the malware from servers 
on people's behalf without actually the consent of the person whose server it was. And that was done by law enforcement uh, and through the courts. They obviously had permission from the courts to do so. But it's unusual to have seen that stance step in. That, I think, was a wake-up call for everybody that actually you could get vulnerabilities in public-facing servers like that. And then at the end of the year, just before the holiday period, you know, what we saw was Log4j and that whole issue of a piece of code that is commonly used in a lot of other software packages. So it's built into it's a piece of open source code and is built into lots of other software packages, so reutilized. And companies running software where they don't realize that actually this piece of open source code is actually running in that system or on those systems. And suddenly there's a vulnerability announced in it and everybody's got to go find and scan their entire network and all the solutions in their network to see whether that script and that code is actually running in any other product. And it's those type of vulnerabilities. They take time, they take effort, and they take a lot of resource for companies to understand. What will companies do going forward? I think that's the big question for me is does that mean that when you go to sign a contract with a cloud provider now or with a a software provider that you're going to turn around and say to the company, I want to see your end user license agreement. It states here that you've got some open source code in there. I want a library. Yeah, I actually want a library of all the pieces of code that you're using. And I think companies are going to become more switched on about actually what software is within the software. Yeah, we're, we're really seeing that layer of uh, complexity, especially, you know, with the AWS outage that happened a few months ago, you're seeing companies being like, well, I didn't even have AWS, but those dependencies on your vendors using AWS is impacting you, whether you know it or not. But like you said, listing that out is is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a challenge. I mean, for a big enterprise with a big cybersecurity team, a big IT team, great. When we step into a smaller business, medium-sized business, that becomes a whole lot more challenging of understanding what's running and how it's running. Uh, And I think we're going to start seeing what I define as enterprise systems coming down the path, which is not, not uncommon in Uh, the terms of security over time anyway, you're going to see some of those big systems starting to be used by medium-sized businesses because they actually need to have that knowledge in front of them. Awesome. So what is your early read on how the threat landscape is evolving this year in 2022? Well, let's let's talk about legis. Let's just let me take you down a, a path here of, of maybe legislation because I think that that might define some of the things uh, that's coming as well. So we've got the executive commitment last year on actually fixing some of the things in federal government and critical, you know, making critical infrastructure. You saw the FDIC uh, at the towards the end in the last quarter of last year put some requirements on for reporting. So. In the financial arena, if a company now has a cyber incident that has a certain severity to its business, then they've got to report that or will have to report that once this becomes actually in place, which I think is uh, the 1st of April, they're going to have to report that. And then you've got the ransomware payments or disclosure bill that is currently sitting on the table as well, uh, not just here in the US either. I mean, Australia have one of those sitting on the their table as well. Uh, What those bills will do is require any company that actually pays a ransomware demand will actually have to tell law enforcement. And I see over the course of this year, some of this change. So whereas these are enforcement points to be notified 
at some stage, some country somewhere is going to turn around and say, yeah, this is unacceptable, stop paying. Or you're going to have to tell us before you pay, and we're going to make the decision on whether you can pay, i.e., is there life-threatening situation here, or is it critical infrastructure, or what is it? And I think you're going to see some changes there. And I think you're also going to see huge changes in the, the way cybersecurity insurance is sold. So, you know, some of the some of the considerations that cyber you know they had to pay out a lot last year so some of the considerations they put into policies and requirements they put into policies are going to be significant and companies are going to have to look at those in the fine print to make sure that they actually they're adhering and doing all the things that their cyber risk insurance policy is going to require them to do because those insurance companies are not going to keep paying out these huge sums of money or put it this way i really hope they're not going to yeah and unfortunately you know, with the cyber insurance market, you know, a lot of companies are using that as quick, easy fix, you know, transfer the responsibility. Unfortunately, I think it's an important part of uh, your security posture, but uh, as, as a one fix all is not ideal, in my opinion. I think the concept of it is kind of being abused a little bit. Um, the idea of it was to fund you to recover and, and, and those good things if you have a cyber incident. Instead, I think it's being used as a frontline defense. It's all right, if we get hit by ransomware, we'll just pay. So that's not how you, you stop cyber crime because you paying today, one means they're probably going to come back because they know you're willing to pay. Uh, and most people that ha have ransomware incidents, unfortunately, have repeat incidents. But also, you're funding cyber crime. For every dollar you send them, you're, you're giving them the resources to go fight with somebody else too. So yeah, at some stage, we have to stop the flow of money and the resources going to these cyber criminals because it's not only just the ones that are in it now, but it's, of course, a motivator for more people to get into that side of cybersecurity as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I haven't really thought much about. Great stuff, all great information. Uh, is there anything, Tony, you want to say the last word on, talk about in terms of ESET, uh, yourself? Well, let's. I can't, I can't actually be on this podcast without Terrence saying, you know, one of the big things, we talked about vulnerabilities in there, patch, patch, and patch. You know, don't ignore patching. And don't forget all the different things that need patching in your environment. Super important. But I'd actually recommend you know, coming to talk to you know, a reseller or a managed service provider that is an ESET partner, getting their expertise, looking at where you, know, you need to be by the end of 2022, and actually having a, a full plan in place of implementation. You know, companies are shifting towards EDR. They are looking at threat intelligence, and they are moving towards a more an analytical viewpoint on their cybersecurity as well. So it's not only about endpoint protection, which is super important because that's preventative, but it's also understanding if I do get hit, what happened, where did it go, how do I get myself out of it, and having that plan in place. So make sure you've got a good trusted partner. And uh, if, if you don't know a good trusted partner, contact us at ESET and we'll put you in touch with one. Awesome. Well, this has been so great. And I'm sure we could talk on these topics for a lot longer. Uh, but that's all the time we have left today. Tony, thank you again for taking the time to chat with me and a big thank you to today's sponsor, ESET. To access the ESET 2021 threat report or get more information about ESET, click the links in the episode details. Again, I'm Kevin Key and thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Kevin.
thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 